This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Adam Anders, a film, television, and music producer who has sold over 100 million albums in his career. His work has earned him two Golden Globe Awards, four Grammy Award nominations, and two People's Choice Awards. He was the executive music producer for Glee, and his new movie, Journey to Bethlehem, will be in theaters beginning November 10th. In this episode, Deacon and Adam discuss Adam's vision and the work on the new film. Journey to Bethlehem is a live-action Christmas musical adventure for the entire family that weaves classic Christmas melodies with humor, faith, and new pop songs and a retelling of the greatest story ever told. Look, I hope people watch this, they will feel exactly what you said, that they'll, they'll understand what Christmas is about, they will feel what it's about, that they'll feel something, joy and, and hope and peace in a dark world, and they'll be moved in some way. But it also, it's a human story. I made it, you know, relatable. It's like, what did Mary go through? How did Mary and Joseph stay together? You know, that's a great love story nobody's ever talked about. This isn't a Christian movie, it's a human story until the end when Christ comes. This is Living the Call. Adam Anders, welcome to Thank the you. show. I'm just getting situated here. Yeah, no worries. You look good. Are you in a studio? Where are you? I'm in my studio. Uh, nice. Yeah, in LA. You're in LA too, aren't you? I'm in LA too. I think I'm a little bit, uh, I'm down the 405. I'm out here by the airport. And I was telling Rachel what used to be called Westchester and now is called the Playa District. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's got better branding. Did you really go to USF? I did. Um, so it was weird. Uh, I was 13 when I started going there. I saw that. But just for music. Um, so I was doing, you know, my normal studies, uh, middle school and then high school through, high, uh, through um, you know, back then homeschool was an odd thing, but uh, that's what I did. I did correspondence through the University of Nebraska, did homeschooling. Wow. Then, and then yeah, I went to I, USF Music. I don't run into a lot of USF alums. I happen to be one. Which is why ah, I'm bringing it up. Go, Absolutely. Go Bulls. go Bulls. I mean, it wasn't, we, we may have gone, I'm a couple of years older than you, but we may have gone at similar times. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Although when I went there, it, it was, was no not football. like a cool, it wasn't a cool school. I mean, you're like a musician. You probably, it was probably cool for you, but it was like a, it was sort of just a regular kind of dumpy state school. And now it's got like, you know, D1 football and everybody's talking about it. It's like a completely different thing. The only thing they had was the golf course, which I liked, but they had no football team. They had a good basketball team, I think. Yeah, they did. Uh, for the most part. But um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're dating ourselves, man. People well, to start Googling, when did USF get a football team? <laughs> well, fortunately for us, I don't think it was that long ago. Um, yeah, I actually went there for yeah. a couple of years and then I transferred to FAU, which another sort of lackluster school, but then at the time and then got themselves a football team. The acronym for mm -hmm. FAU that I remember people using was find another university when I went there and now it's, and now it's, uh, that's awesome. Now it's a yeah, thing. And weren't they in like the final four or something? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like out of nowhere, you know, I also didn't know you were from Stockholm too. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. part of this is I meet you in Nashville. So like my, my sort of perspective is just you're local in some way you're connected. And mm -hmm. I know you do have a Nashville connection, but, but I, did, I didn't know when did you get to the States. Well, uh, my parents were, um, traveling music ministers. It was the, they would travel around and sing all over the world and do missions work and stuff. And they were, my dad was an opera singer. My mom's a concert pianist. Wow. And, um, so they brought us along with them and then they went into gospel music instead. So that's how I grew up. So when I was like, I think three, we first came to the States, uh, and got green cards 
And that's a whole crazy story how we got green cards. But um, so from that point on, I, I pretty much went back and forth between Sweden and traveling the world. And then the U.S. was the winter base because if you've been to Sweden in the winter, it's not the coolest place to be. Um, very cold and dark. So um, that's what we did. We toured uh, Europe in the summers and North America in the winters and different things in between. Oh, very cool upbringing. Yeah, I've never been to anywhere in Scandinavia. I've been blessed to visit 40 countries, but all of Scandinavia and all of Asia are yet um, untapped, you know, areas to go. But, I mean, it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's, but the whole kind of growing up all over the place, I definitely know that world pretty well. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, very, very, very fun. Um, upbringing obviously toured australia new zealand we went all over the place so yeah. it, it was very cool but and you um, and you gra- you graduated from usf at a really young age too right i mean you you were into this like kind of prodigy musical program with bass yeah. playing and mm-hmm. by the way you're swedish so i got to ask you about your um your bass influences but one of my favorite bassists right now is henrik linder from uh, mm-hmm. dirty loops who's yeah. like i mean yeah. are you at that level of sort of proficiency I can explain a little bit to the audience. I was. I was. Uh, I would not say I am now. Um, But when I was in studying jazz bass, I was was a bit of a freak um, back then, especially as a 13-year-old when they took me in. Uh, graduate, uh, we say that very loosely, I, I stopped studying. Because <laughs> 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 uh, to graduate, I would have to go. I got college credits for music and I did the whole music thing, but I had no college credits for anything else. So I'd have to then keep studying. So I kind of finished all my bass studies at, at 16. And my professor there, uh, the jazz bass professor, I was like, what do I do now? And I had a scholarship to continue my studies and whatever. But he's like, do you want to be a teacher? I'm like, no. He's like, well, then you don't really need a music degree, which is really hmm. interesting for a professor to say. But really, it's true. In, in, in music, degrees are good for, for uh, you know, becoming a teacher. And that was not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to play. And he's like, well, he kind of said, I've taught you all I can. Go go do your thing. And so I moved out when I was 16 mm. and moved to Nashville and started gigging as a bass player. Wow. So I would I would basically work. I, I went to Manpower, you know, those temp sure. job yeah, courses. Yeah. And I got temp jobs. Um and then I would play for everyone for free, um, just to, sh- I would say, I'll play for you for free once to show what I can do. And then the next time I'm going to charge you. And it took me about, I don't know, two months and I was <laughs> just playing. I was going to so, say, when you get I into college. some uh, Pepsi trucks and uh-huh. uh, sorted some potato chips. And after that, wow. I was off. Yeah. That's fun. super cool. Yeah. For, I mean, well, when you, when you get into college at 13, because you're a good bass player, probably playing for free once is all it takes to get people to go, yeah, I'll have you back. I might, uh, you know, it's funny though. I was a good bass bass player, but I was kind of a runaway train. I was like, you know, cause I was very proficient as you said, but bass actually calls for the opposite to just have no ego and sit back there and just hold it down. Yeah. I had to learn that. But the thing that got me the most work was my singing. Which oh, really? I, didn't I mean, since I grew up singing and playing and, and not many people can do that. It's a, it's a whole thing. You got to like split your brain in half and, you sing lyrics and rhythms there and then you're playing sure. notes and yeah, it's, it's a hard thing. And, uh, I was very, very good at it and a really good singer. And, and that got me all kinds of gigs. And I ended up touring with huge artists right away as a teenager with Stephen Curtis Chapman worldwide in arenas and stuff. Cause they needed a bass player who could sing wow. and they couldn't find one. And here was this teenager who could do it. <clears throat> I grew up as a roadie for, mm. for my brother, also a bassist. Mm. Um, you know, it was, this was also in South Florida. And, um, you know, so I would kind of sit back and put the gear together and tear down the set and do all that stuff. 
I liked music, but not at the level that you need to in order to really be committed to to a band. But I remember growing up with all these kind of bass, you know, influences that were kind of tangential to me because I wasn't super into it. But I remember like Stanley Clark and Jaco Pistorius and, you know, Getty Lee on the rock side and, you know, Chris Squire and like all these great bassists. And my brother just trying to explain to me, he's like, no, no, you don't understand. The bassist typically does this. And like, he would try to you know, explain it to me. He went on to get, he's a composer and a priest, by the way. Um, he went on to get his, uh, you know, all of his musical uh, degrees and all that stuff. But like, for whatever reason, probably because of that, like I always pay particular attention to the bassist in these different, you know, mm. areas, because I know enough to know sort of the difference between, you know, how, how the bass is, is participating in, in, uh, in the musical kind of setup. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I came across, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but Dirty Loops, which for those who don't know is this, it's a contem- they're a contemporary trio. They're actually Swedish as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and their bassist is just, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like that technical ability. Now you could say, well, you know, whatever, there's also soul and art and everything that has to be part of this, but just on a technical level, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. All of these guys, they're, you know, the, the, the singer, mm-hmm. the vocalist, uh, keyboardist or piano uh, the bassist and the percussionist are just like yeah, sick musicians. Sick. There's some, I see some things now though, frankly, I don't know. It, it's hard back when I was doing this, it was hard to even gauge how good you were compared to others. Cause all I would do is compare myself to John Petitucci and, oh, Getty yeah. and you know, James Jamerson was my hero. Um, and I could play all that stuff backwards and forwards and I could play cello suites on my bass and just do crazy wow. things. But how good? I don't know. I mean, there's no video evidence and there's no social media to check. But I go on social media now and my head explodes. I see these like 10 year olds that are complete freaks. I'm like, what is happening? And I'm wondering, was that me? Was I like that? I'm like, I can't imagine I was that good at that age, but maybe. I don't know. Um, But man, there's um, but it, it seems like it's kind of like in sports. You see gymnasts now doing things that, you know, Nadia Comaneci didn't do. Right. Mary Lou Retton did a simple little thing. Now you look at Simone Biles, like what in the world? Yeah. So I think it's the same even with with music, like proficiency then, like who we considered a freak when I was 13 compared to what we think is a freak now at 13 is very different. That's super interesting, too, because, I mean, it definitely it has to do something to be able to see someone else, be able to break it down, pause it, rewind it, analyze it a thousand different ways. I mean, it's got to up your game, but definitely the physical piece is a good uh, good comparison athletics. I mean, every you know forty yard dash gets faster, every mile gets faster, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. And it's it probably is the net effect of being able to actually see people doing it at a level yeah, of proficiency. Yeah, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. Do you ever meet any of your kind of base idols? I did, I did. So um, Marcus Miller was a big influence as well, and um, uh, Abraham Laboriel was a big influence. I met him a few times, and then ended up hiring his son Abe Junior to play on tons of records. That was wow. super fun. And I, I called his dad actually to get a hold of his son and it was this whole funny story, but that was one. But then I was on the, I was, uh, on the Grammy board for four years, um, and, uh, happened to be seated next to Marcus Miller of all wow. people. And I was kind of pinching myself like, this is crazy. My hero sitting right next to me on this Grammy board. So that, yeah, you need to meet those people along the way. And I'm, I'm kind of you know, I've worked with some really huge names and I'm not really starstruck at all, but I run into Corey Henry, you know, mm. <laughs> the Grammys is like my, I think one of the most brilliant musicians on the planet right now. And I'm like, you know, 
yeah, that's you the fa- guy. You, f- you fanboy. Yeah. That's the guy I fanboy around. And, For and sure. Jay-Z walks by and I, I'm like, get out of my way. I got to get to Corey Henry. Um, so yeah. it's, uh, but I think that's when your musician, um, you know, I would rather go somewhere to a small club and see three incredible musicians play than go to a stadium uh, and see a band play with million, you know, thousands of people screaming because that intimacy and seeing what they do and just knowing how hard it is to get to that level uh, and seeing that musicianship up close, just that moves me uh, in a totally different way. And that's the cool thing about the Nashville scene. It kind of is that, right? I mean, a lot of those places. Um, mm-hmm. I was there about a year ago. Um, Even LA, there's still some. LA, they, there's some. Yeah, there's some places still kicking, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Adam, for 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 those who I mean don't know you, you're you're Grammy nominated, Golden Globe winner, People Choice Award winner, you uh, exact music producer of Glee and did stuff with Rock of Ages. I mean, your your discography, filmography, television kind of work is um, it's really really astounding. Um, but I met you because Sony and Affirm were kind enough to invite me and bunch of other faith leaders to see your your directorial debut and it's like it's funny to say directorial because that's that's not all you did right i mean you you, you wrote this you, you 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 did the music i mean this is really your baby but um the movie um journey to bethlehem which uh, which comes out on november 10th in just a couple of weeks here by the time this episode um actually uh airs and uh that's how we met mm-hmm. and I definitely want to talk about this. I, I want to just share with you, if I can, sort of my initial, kind of like my expectation and then how that was sort of changed, maybe as a jumping off point. But okay. this thing is is obviously deeply personal to you and, and, and I definitely want to talk about it. But, you know, people who listen to this show know that I, you know, I, I talk and teach and, you know, I do a lot of different things. I, I'm Catholic. And so in, in that kind of Catholic media space, I'm fairly active and I get invites to do a lot of different things. Um, but there was something that was really interesting about this invitation. First of all, this was like happening in Nashville. It was happening among, among a lot of faith leaders. Um, there were some Catholic folks there, but they were kind of the minority. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool. I definitely want to go see this. But my expectation of the film itself was, okay, this is going to be kind of maybe kid family, but in the sort of kid family saccharine kind of way that a lot of, um, sadly, Christian media and other things kind of are in that food group. And so the bar was pretty low when I walked in before I started seeing this movie. But from the opening scene, by the way, the, the thing in movies that I pay attention to, like in music, I watch The Bassist. In film, I pay attention to cinematography. Mm. Cinematography, shots, lighting, like all that stuff, like the ambiance, the setting of the, of, of the film. And literally from the first frame, I'm like, oh, this is going to be different. Like it was, this is something different. And then of course, like the film unfolds and we're going to talk about it. But um, by the time I got out of this thing, I was like, believer, like go talk to people about it, share with it. I did Mm. some, some little clips for you guys and Sony and uh, I don't know where that went, but it really surprised me, I guess. And and, and that that may feel terrible. You as a creator that I was surprised because like, you're like, what are you talking about? Do you not know what the things I've done? But I didn't know much about you. And, um, and I had that sort of, le- that, that expectation, which I don't think is maybe unusual for people to have about this kind of film, but I was really, really surprised. Um, last thing I'll say is I also brought into this, my experience, which I know we share from Disney. And in fact, you and I <clears throat> probably in very different parts of the building, I was on the business side, but you and I overlapped at Disney as well. And the kind of cheetah girl, Hannah Montana time. Yeah. Okay. 
But the music was the next thing that I was like, oh, this is now even more different than what I expected. Mm. Because I recognized the sort of musical um, ability and talent that was there. And just the catchiness and the real kind of joy of the music that I could sort of hear audiences and see audiences singing this in other settings, like by the time I was done. So anyway, I walked, I, I came in as a kind of two and walked out as, a, you know, nine and a half, you know what I mean? In terms of level of, um, of real appreciation for what you've done. Wow. That's high praise, man. I appreciate that. Um, how do I get you at a 10? That's the question. <laughs> Where well, did like, it go wrong? <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a Scorsese fan. So you're going to have to put in some like pause, you know, some like All really right. long shots. Some blood. Gonna, some blood. You're going to have to put in like a, like a four minute single mm. camera, you know, walking through a building and some pause with a narration in the background. Like if you do yeah. that, we're at a family movie. Uh, they'd all walk out. Yeah. Um, you know what? No high praise, man. I actually don't expect you to know who I am. I don't expect anyone to know who I am. I'm a behind the scenes guy. I love it that way. Um, you know, and, and uh, there is some stuff you have to overcome. I think when you make a movie, I don't consider this a faith based movie. Uh, I've, I've said that I, I consider it a Christmas movie, a Christmas musical. It's a, it's a musical made about Christmas, right? Um, I didn't set out to make this for Christians. Um, I just yeah. didn't, I'm, I just set up to make it for everyone like you do with a movie and hopefully everyone will love it. And then this message then reaches everyone. Um, so that was the intent behind it. Um, and so there is some stuff you have to overcome, some stigmas. I think uh, historically, probably faith movies have not been great. Um, I think they're getting a lot better. There's some yeah. really good filmmakers coming out uh, in, in this uh, world now. And I think it's because we're all aligned in that we're not trying to make faith-based movies anymore. We're just trying to make great art. Um, so very, very important to me that this movie, um, you know, was different and that it was uh, a, a work of art and not just uh, pandering or, you know, I don't know. Um, I've obviously been out here a long time making movies with the best of the best, right? So I know what it looks like, <laughs> you know, I've been very fortunate to be in a film school of sorts for my entire career. And I think that uh, obviously rubs off. And um, so kudos to Sony Affirm and Monarch for letting me make my movie. Um, you know, they weren't in there trying to get me to change my vision or, no, you should do this more. You should, you know, put an altar call at the end or something, you know, I feel like the story takes care of all that. I don't need to add, you know, to it. To yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, and yeah, the cinematography, I mean, for me, my mission the whole time was, uh, if I wanted to be able to pause the movie at any point and it looked like a painting, that was my, that was my goal. And I think I talked about that maybe at, in Nashville. Uh, we yeah, you did a little bit. I remember that line and that was really cool because that's definitely something you can see is like this sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a framing, it's a composition, it's a, it's a depth, right. Um, that comes through that communicates more than necessarily what's like in that particular shot, the backdrop, obviously super beautiful. You shot the film in Spain. Mm -hmm. I know you, you kind of looked at a bunch of different places though, right. Before you settled okay. on that. Yeah, not by choice. Um, it's just this, this is a movie, you know, I've tried for 17 years to make this movie and I wasn't ready 17 years ago. So, you know, God's like, no, hold on. You know, I heard somebody say that day, sometimes God pushes pause on our lives. Mm. Um, and I think that's fair here. I, I had the idea, the seed was planted, but it, you know, had to be watered for a long time. But then, you know, a few years ago, it was going to be Utah and we were ready to go in Utah and then that fell through. And actually that's where The Chosen is filmed. Yep. 
um, that set. We were first in there before The Chosen and worked very hard to be able to use that set and then it, it didn't work out. So then I had to find a new location and then I scouted the Holy Land. Actually, well, this is a cool idea. Let's shoot it where it happened. Um, but that became extremely uh, difficult geopolitically. Um, you know, when we visited, it was very peaceful and, and not at all what's going on now, which is horrible. Yeah. Um, but you know, things started, uh, getting worse very quickly after we left the scout and I didn't feel a piece about it at all. Mm. Um, so then we looked at Morocco (laughs) and that's just not the movie I wanted to make that then you end up in the same look that all biblical movies have, which is sheep grazing in dirt, you know, very brown (laughs) movie, staff sandals, you yeah. know, that, that's just yeah, not what my vision, my vision was colorful, celebration, vibrant kids lean in. They're like, wow, it's their storybook Bible come to life. You yeah. know, that, that's been my vision. Um, that's why the opening of the movie was so important to me to, to portray that right from the very beginning. This is a storybook Bible come to life. That whole opening sequence that you were talking about was by design and to have comedy from the beginning. So, you know, what movie you're in, you are allowed to laugh. You're allowed to have a good time. This is mm. not going to be a sad, depressing movie. This is going to be a celebration. Yeah, Morocco didn't fit that. So then Spain, I, I had scouted Spain for another movie and I called my guys there and I said, can we make this here? And they sent me pictures and locations and, you know, within a week or so. And I was like, this is it. This is the spot. This is amazing. And we went all in, we pivoted to, to Spain and here we are. Where in Spain specifically, or was it all over the place? I scouted and, uh, sorry, I uh, prepped the movie in Madrid. So I, I moved to Madrid October last year um, and prepped there until January. And then we moved down to the south of Spain on the Mediterranean. It looks very much like Israel. So it was great that I went to Israel because I got to, it, I had in my mind's eye what I was looking for. And um, so the south of Spain looks so much like, like Israel. Mm. Um, and it's called uh, Almeria is the main location. And it's just kind of east, northeast of Malaga. Okay. Um, and that's where our main location was. Our back lot, if you will, Exodus was shot there. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Game of Thrones, um, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, amazing stuff has been filmed there. So that was incredible. Um, and then the other location was Alicante, which is another city a couple hours away on the coast, yeah. uh, which has this amazing castle called the Santa Barbara Castle. And that's Herod's castle in our movie. Yeah, beautiful. And by the way, speaking of the cinematography, your DP on this was uh, uh, Xavi Jimenez, mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, props to him. Um, I definitely have to go back and look a lot of his work. Yeah, he's amazing, man. He he did um, he did a Christian Bale movie that I saw, um, and now the name of it escapes me when Christian lost so much weight for it. Okay. Uh, the Machinist. It was called The Machinist. The Machinist, yeah, that's right. Um, incredible movie, I think Oscar nominated, and I think Christian won an Oscar for it. Um, and just remarkable cinematography. And I'm like, who's this guy? And then uh, I was trying to find somebody in Europe, you know, for tax incentive reasons and stuff. And um, and he came up uh, on a list of people. And I was like, this guy, <laughs> let me talk to this guy. Um, and his body of work is amazing. And he'd worked in Hollywood a ton and actually was named a top 10 DP in the world wow. at one point by, uh, by Variety Magazine. But he moved back to Spain to, to raise his family. And um, he cho- chose his family over, you know, the big blockbuster movies. Um, so I was very fortunate. And it, just all the people that I ended up um, having the good fortune to work with on this, I just feel like God like brought this like A team together that is really amazing. With the production designer, incredible, Edu Hidalgo, Elena Mossum, who did the costume design. She's Swedish, but lives in Spain. I'm Swedish, so that was fun. We spoke Swedish all the time, which was awesome. Nice. 
Um, and even on posts, I have multiple Oscar winners, you know, who showed up for me because I've built goodwill in, in Hollywood for, for 20 years. And they're like, yeah, we'll come to your movie, you know, and I have no business having the type of people I have on this movie for the budget we had. Um, so it was uh, really, really fun. And everyone working on this movie wanted to be there and loved the movie and the story. And I think you can feel it. Mm. Well, yeah, that's how God works, right? The sort of synchronicity and the sort of organization where you can see it really clearly in the rear view. But as it's happening, you may get a sense of what's going on, but it's still kind of hard to perceive, but it's usually around the sort of people and the collaboration. And then you see this greater thing, you know, being born. What, what, what did you, I mean, this is your, you've been, like I mentioned, you had a whole body of work musically and you've known all these people and you've been kicking around for, for this long, but this is your first, you know, this is your debut directing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. what you, I guess, what did you learn from that experience? And then how did God show up in that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's my directorial debut. It's not my first rodeo. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not a traditional first time director. I've, I've been on sets for, for 20 years, like we said, and done everything else that I did in this movie I've done for other movies, except direct. I've written screenplays. I've, you know, done the music. I've done score. I've written songs. I've produced movies. I've done all this stuff, but I hadn't directed. And that's one thing I'd resisted for a long time because it's a huge time suck. And I've always had three or four projects going at the same time um, and been able to do that because I haven't directed. And, and I had been asked to do it in the past for musicals um, and I hadn't taken the leap. Um, but it's interesting because my whole career, you know, I started as a bass player, like we said, then I was a songwriter, then a producer songwriter, then I got into film and TV and I've just kind of kept pushing the, the carrot forward. Um, and I've done that because I never felt like I was quite, satisfied creatively and and i'm not a malcontent at all yeah. um i'm very grateful for what I, I my career if it i say all the time if it ended tomorrow i'm like wow okay i was this 13 year old bass player i never saw this coming right um but i always felt like man what why am i not content like mm. what is my issue mm. it's not content in life but creatively content there's something i'm still looking for and and then it was crazy, man, when I decided to direct this movie and I was got into the process and I go, oh my gosh, this is the thing. Yeah, you get in the pocket. Yep. Yeah, and I finally found my calling after all these years. Like, this is the thing that I'm fully creatively content and I know I'm where I'm supposed to be, but I'm here in the right time. Mm. You know, this one, because I'd, I'd had to learn all these things and do all these other things because I took a very non-traditional route to film director. Um, but like we said, I was in film school for the last 20 years, you know, um, the real film school. Yeah. And uh, honestly, yeah. I mean, you can, no better way to learn than to work with great directors on set, you know, and, and in writing rooms with great writers. And, um, so it's, it's been really fun to, to find that. And, and I think my, my, my passion for it hopefully came through in the movie because I, I dream this movie, you know, yeah. I, I read it, I live it. Uh, I'd go to sleep at night and literally my dreams were the movie. And I'd wow. wake up, I'd write down what I dreamt and I'd keep going. And and it just, um, it was, it was a really uh, amazing experience. Um, yeah. I had, um, you mentioned The Chosen earlier. I had Jonathan Rumi on the show and we talked a lot about the sort of set experience um, for you when you were doing this. Because I know that there's, by the way, we haven't even talked about the cast, which is r- really, you know, awesome cast. Uh, in particular, like the ones that's uh, everybody did did great, but like everybody's got their favorites, right? So, um, the woman who plays uh, the character of Mary, or the person of Mary, Fiona, uh, Fiona Palomo. Uh, obviously, uh, Antonio Banderas is in it. He plays Herod. Uh, Milo Mannheim plays Joseph, and 
Joel Smallbone. That was a really good one too. The the the, the son of Herod. He plays mm-hmm. Ant, uh, Antipater. A lot of really great kind of roles, but curious about the actual like set experience. Because at the end of the day, I'm sure everybody's on their different walk of whatever that walk is faith wise. Mm-hmm. If at all, maybe you have people not even started that walk, but they're like they're working on this project that is deeply. Uh, you know, deeply faith-driven. I mean, here we're, if you're a Christian, you believe this is the moment that eternity enters the sort of material world in 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 the birth of the Messiah. And so mm-hmm. that's also happening, right? At the same time that people are kind of going through these different journeys. And what what's that like on on set, right? Like how does that how does that kind of show up? And 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 do and do folks like kind of break off and maybe, you know, have some kind of uh, you know, prayer experience or something as they're doing it? Like, how, how does that work? What what happens there on the set? It's a great question. Um, you know, I don't believe in hiring Christians um, to do, you know, if they're Christian, great. I, I believe in hiring the best people. Yeah. I'm the, I'm a Christian. So hopefully I lead by example, you know, from top down and set a tone on set that people can feel is different. I, our first day of shooting, I kind of gathered the crew and, and cast and I said, I just want you guys to know that, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and I'm praying for us, and I'm praying for you every day. I'm praying for this production that we'll be safe and that this will be a great experience for all of us. Um, and I, I didn't make them do it. I didn't do anything. I'm just like, I just want you to know that I'm a man of faith and I'm praying for us all every day. And they really appreciated that. And I think it set a tone from the beginning. Um, but then we ended up having a lot of, you know, a lot of Catholics working on it. Uh, this is, you know, uh, Antonio's, uh, yep. uh, you know, strong Catholic. Um, and I don't really, didn't really ask people, well, where are you with your faith? It was right. more like, it was interesting how everyone could feel that it was something different about the mm-hmm. movie. Um, I obviously brought, I wanted to bring in a couple um, characters, like that you mentioned Antipater. And it, it was very important to me that that was played by a Christian solely in the fact that that character is not mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I wanted somebody who would embrace the reason I have that character in the movie. Um, and Joel was amazing. Um, and uh, Mariah, his wife, I cast first as Mary's sister, Deborah. Um, and, you know, those were important to me just to have support, you know, because if you're the only Christian and there's hard times and it's a tough thing making a movie to have people that I could huddle up with and that I felt their support and, and uh, we could have them on a prayer. Mariah brought her mom, who's an amazing woman, a prayer warrior. Mm. And she was going around praying all the time. I could go to her and say, hey, my kids are struggling at home. You know, I haven't been home in six months. You know, can you pray for them? And there were things way on. Life keeps going. Yeah. You know? That's the hardest thing people understand. I mean, I moved away from seven months. Mm. There was a nine-hour time change. My, I'd be asleep when my kids got out of school. Yeah, it's tough. And I get to talk to them on a Saturday, you know, for an hour. And, you know, in the beginning, it was great. And then they'd start to get bored with it. And then you kind of out of mind. And then after a few months, they told their friends they just lived with their mom, you know. <laughs> Those are the things that are just heartbreaking. Yeah, it's hard. You go through and it's such a sacrifice and people don't see it. Mm. So having that support uh, on set, people who understand and get it was huge. But I'd say, you know, the set is a mission field too, yeah, right? Of course. Like I told you, if this movie bombs and nobody ever sees it, it was still worth it. The process alone has touched so many people. And it's been, even just me personally, it's changed me. I made my faith stronger. Um, you know, I got closer to God through this process. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people did. And, and I had people, you know, we had a very diverse uh, crew um, and I had people you wouldn't expect 
um, who would come up to me and said, I'll go, I'll work on any movie you do because this was different. Um, How do you think that people, I mean, people who know, who, who work with you or maybe knew you in the industry from Glee or whatever, Captain Underpants, which you also worked on DreamWorks uh, animation. Um, how do they see you now after this film? Gosh, you know, that's a great question. I've been actually wondering that because I've never hidden my faith in Hollywood. You know, I've been here a long time and people know I'm a Christian. Some don't like it. Um, you know, I do good work, so they've hired me anyway, <laughs> you know, and I believe in that. It's like, yeah. let's just do great work. Make sure people know where you stand, but I don't go around preaching at people. I just do good work. I show up on time. I do it on budget. I'm pleasant to be around and they'll hire me again in spite of maybe disagreements, um, about religion or politics or whatever it may be. You know, Christians can feel like an Island in Hollywood. Yeah. You, you probably know, you know, we're like we're alone, but we're not. There's, there's a lot of us, um, here, but uh, I think we need to stay engaged in pop culture rather than retreat yep, from it because what happens here affects the entire world. And if all Christians say, you know what, I'm going to go to a bubble somewhere that's easier to live in and people, there's more like-minded people. Well, what happens then if we withdraw completely from pop culture? Um, so I've always been open about my faith. However, not this publicly. You know, this is really public. Um, now you can you can go watch this movie yeah. and know where I stand, where my faith and how important my faith is to me. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll yeah. see. I'll let you know. You know, I'll come back on and say how has it been received. But I can tell you they've been showing up to screenings, all my friends, all my coworkers, uh, they're hugely supportive yeah. so far. Um, and I'm appreciative of it. Here's the way that I see it. I mean, I think that um, the way that I think about a life of faith, uh, specifically a Christian understanding and a worldview, is it's, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world, right? A relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's really going out into the depths of the ocean. But the ocean has a shoreline. There's a place where people come in and kind of put their feet into the water. And they kind of play in the shallows. And starting in the depths is not always something that everybody does. It's not part of a journey to just get sort of plopped and dropped in the middle of, you know, the Pacific or whatever. Usually people interact with this depth in a variety of ways. And there's a starting point. That starting point is a shoreline. The way that I view the shoreline is kind of popular culture in a way. Now, it can be something that is completely avoided, which is your kind of example that a lot of folks feel they can just kind of recede into the woods and whatever, read scripture. By the way, in the Catholic world, there's a school of thought called the Benedict Option, which is that kind of thing, which is like, look, the world's shot. We can't win it. Let's just go off somewhere, raise our family and pray the hell out of the you know things so that everything will get better. And while there is a kind of monastic version of that, that is a, a true calling from God, for the most part, most of us are not called to that reality. We're called to engage in the world. And scripture obviously reaffirms this time and time again with the idea of the leaven and, you know, the dough's got to go up. It's not all leaven, like we need some leaven. And so I respond very similar to what you did, particularly when I go to other places in the country and people ask me, it's like, wait a minute, you live in LA? Because a lot of people that I hang with are like in Indiana or Nashville or whatever. And they're like, how do you live there? I'm like, dude, dude like Levin, right? Like where we, we have to stay here. And by the way, I'm formed also by this. It's not just about me giving something to somebody. Like I'm being formed too amidst all this stuff. Cause that's how God works. It's a two way street. But I do think that we have to engage much more with pop culture. And here's the thing that I think is the best thing about your movie. Cause everybody has ambitions, right? I mean, it's like, I want everybody to see my film and whatever. And it's like, and a lot of times that doesn't happen. This film actually does have the ability to be that shoreline. 
to be that place where a lot of people who are not familiar with what the story is, A, or B, understand the significance of this story, may have that toe-in-the-water moment to draw closer. And I say that because of all the things we've mm-hmm. talked about. Probably we haven't talked enough about the music, but the music is a big part of that, right? It's like getting people to really mm-hmm. connect with a, with, a, with a project like this through song. I mean, look what it's done. Look what it did for High School Musical, which I know also has a connection to this film because you co-wrote it with, with somebody who worked on that. So like to me, I think mm-hmm. a movie like this can actually do what a lot of people think that their movie can do vis-a-vis engaging with the culture. I think something like this has a real shot. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Mine too. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad that came across and you saw that because that's the intent, right? And we talked about it, that I didn't make it for Christians. Uh, it's I didn't make it for a narrow audience. I made it for a broad audience without trying to water it down, right? And that's a trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> Because then I know I'm going to have a target on my back. Um, you know, you take creative license and I'm like, it's not a documentary. They're breaking out into dance and song to pop music. Right. Yes. Figure it out. Not what happened. Yeah. So <laughs> I get a little creative license. Uh, I'm trying to make this digestible yeah. to everyone. And I'm trying to make sure that they watch Elf at Christmas, but they turn this on next. Yeah. that I love when you said that too in Nashville, because I was like, you know what? I can see that. I could mm-hmm. totally see that. You got Christmas story, you've got Elf, maybe White Christmas if you're old school like me, and then you mm-hmm. kind of throw this one on. I could totally see that. And Elf isn't a musical either. No. So as far as musicals go, there's nothing. And uh, so it's a it's a bit groundbreaking. But anytime you try to do something different and new, it's it's scary and it's hard. But it also has the best chance of success and has the highest ceiling um, because it is different. And look, I um, I hope. When people watch this, they will feel exactly what you said, that they'll, they'll understand what Christmas is about. They will feel what it's about, that they'll feel something, joy and, and hope and peace in a dark world. Um, and they'll be moved in some way. And, but it's, it's also, it's a human story. I made it, I made it, you know, relatable. It's yeah. like, what did Mary go through? How did Mary and Joseph stay together? You know, that's a great love story. Nobody's ever talked about. This isn't a Christian movie. It's a human story until the end when Christ comes, mm. right? You saw it. There's no Christian music in this. Mm-hmm. There's songs about what they're going through. And then it becomes Christian when it needs to That's be, right. when Christ comes, right? Uh, this is about, well, what was it like to go on this journey to Bethlehem for Mary and Joseph and everyone around them? And um, I think that's really interesting because the Bible, you have Matthew 1 and 2, you have Luke 1 and 2. There's not a lot of details, yeah. right? So I played in the in-betweens. I'm like, well, they don't. it doesn't say what Mary went through personally. So then I put myself in her shoes and try to imagine, you know, that must have been really hard. You know? But I think it's necessary, too. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I think The Chosen has been as successful as it has, because it kind of plays mm-hmm. in those in those kind of empty spaces and it creates yeah. the backstory. And the backstory is actually cogent. It's congruent. It makes sense. Like, oh, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be true, but it could have been true. It could have been, been true. Yeah. And it's and there's nothing, um, you know, against the faith as a result of mm-hmm. the things that they show. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. When when you're doing this though, like on set, do you have like um, you know advisors, uh, biblically, theologically, anything like that that are part of this? Um, sometimes you do, yeah. Uh, not on a musical as much. I think um, you know normally I think a firm does for their really more kind of documentary style movies. 
But we had people looking at the symbolism, mm -hmm. at the script. We, we've had people along the way to check things out and make sure it was accurate. I had one of my producers, Stephen Minan, uh, is is like an encyclopedia of knowledge um, for for this this stuff, and that was a huge resource for me. Um, but like we said, I'm, I was living in the in betweens, and um, obviously we wanted to be historically accurate as much as possible. Like the costumes, you know, people uh, say things about you know Herod's muscle cuirass that he's wearing. Oh, look at those muscles! Well, that is an actually authentic. Roman muscle curious that he would have worn, right? And it's just cool historical things. Um, but at the same time, if we don't heighten this movie, if I made a really grounded chosen type movie, when they start singing and dancing to pop what music, the, you're going to go, exactly. what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You're an idiot. So you have to heighten everything around the song so that it's a seamless transition. So you heighten it with more color, with a little more flair, with Herod being a little unhinged and a crazy rock star and thinking he's Mick Jagger of the time. You know, these are the things you do. So when he starts singing, you're not like thrown off by it. Um, so yeah, it, look, it's not a documentary. It's not, but the things that were uh, non-negotiable stayed non-negotiable. Yeah. With the music too, the sort of interesting thing to me, well, actually this is a question for you. When, when you do the film to the extent you're thinking about who it's for, my sense mm -hmm. is you were thinking maybe, maybe broadly or more broadly, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make a good movie. You want people to go see it. It's not a Christian movie but it's made by a Christian. You want to kind of have that shine through your subject matter, clearly that kind of thing, but it's also Christmas. So like I, I, I have this picture, I could be wrong, that it's sort of wide. When I think of music, it seems like, and again, could be completely wrong, that to the extent that you think of a person listening to it, you kind of have to fine tune it a little bit more. Like who's going to like this kind of music? Was that the case? And, and if so, like who, who, how did those audiences in your mind, how are they different? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Hundred um, percent. You definitely target audiences with music. Um, now, I do what I do. I'm Swedish. We've covered that. We do pop music, right? Um, so everything has that through line. It's very catchy. I did not approach this as a musical theater show. I approached this as radio hits, right? Songs that you would uh, put on a record. You know, um, that's how I approach yeah. Glee. You know, we didn't approach it from a Broadway musical theater um, standpoint. We approached it, let's make it as catchy and digestible as possible. Mission accomplished. Um, and I did that. <laughs> yeah. And, and you look, Mary's Getting Married, which is the first song that, that we performed. Yeah. Um, that's for, that's for yeah. girls. You know, that's a song for girls. And by the way, all pop music is written for, for girls. There's a little trade secret I'm sharing here. Um, you write music for women and for girls. And if they love it, it will work. Um, and it's just the way it is, especially for pop. Um, but that song specifically was for younger girls. My, I have two boys. They don't love that song. That's not for them. Herod's song. Another great one. Antipater's yeah. song. For them. They love those songs. And, you know, it's really cool for me when we tested the movie that I scored just as high with boys as I did with girls mm. because that's unusual for a musical mm. right boys don't usually like musicals but because I have two boys at home that I had to please um I got both which was great and they love all that stuff the Herod stuff and the horses and the castles and the swords all that stuff that we give them but then the girls get married getting married the girls get the romance of Mary and Joseph um, so you're definitely thinking about it. And then you also think about the character, right? Like you create a sound for the character. The darker, more rock-tinged stuff is for the villains. The more, you know, timeless classic pop songs and duets are for Mary mm. and Joseph. You know, you're, and the more fun theatrical stuff, if anything, was the Wiseman because they're comedy. 
you know, they're our comic relief. So you're definitely thinking about that as you're composing. Antonio, um, who plays Herod, actually sang, right? His, mm-hmm. his, uh, that, that song you just referenced. I mean, like not Indeed. just sang it, I mean, like belted mm-hmm. it. I mean, he just nailed this thing. It's crazy. Actually. It's crazy. Um, I had to have somebody who could sing in, in the, you know, in Herod's spot. Cause, uh, that song is really hard. And the last note on that is so stinking high. Um, and he actually thought, I can't sing that. He's like, I can't sing. I'm like, I've heard you sing. I know you can do it. And uh, I told the story of how we, he was uh, directing a play and starring in a play in Madrid when we were prepping. And he'd been tops of my list for three years to be Herod. I just couldn't get him to focus on it because mm-hmm. he was directing this play. And his manager liked it for him. They liked the script. They loved the song, but he's just like, eh, this is too hard. Um of course, it wasn't. Um, and when I finally got him, we started going every night to his play. And uh, he finally came out and talked to me. And I got to kind of do my elevator pitch. And we just hit it off creatively. And he's like, I don't know what the song, man. I'm like, dude, you've been singing the same note every night live. You've got this. Um, and I played him the notes on my iPhone on a keyboard that he'd been hitting in this show live. So I'm like, you've got this song. And so we ended up getting him. Um, and uh, he mm. just crushed it. I think from an acting standpoint, the character he created was exactly what I had in my my head when I when I wrote it. You know, this kind of unhinged rock star um, narcissist who's evil, but you know, flips from evil to like fun and goofy and camp at the same. You know, he just could do this turn that's very hard. And then he sang this song. He hit that high note like ten times in the studio, no problem. He's unbelievable. Uh, very fortunate to have. That is kind of the right persona, right? Sort of the 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 aging, semi volatile rock star. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like th- that is exactly the the paradigm. I think that mm-hmm. you that you hit with that. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea he could even sing. Was it was it, it was your elevator pitch about the music principally, or was it about the movie first? It was the character. He was like, "Do I get to play the villain, the bad guy?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah. do you ever?" Um, and I just gave him like a quick pitch, and, and it was funny. He he did this thing. So you saw the movie, and Herod snaps his fingers at one point at the end of the song, which is kind of weird and cool. Um, but he did that in his play for some reason. His character, and it's not in the Sondheim play that he he was doing Company. They don't do that. He oh. added that as a director, snapping his fingers, and the lights would change, and it would he would control everything by snapping his fingers. And I go, "That's my end." I was like praying, God, give me like the line I need to get him in three minutes, you know? And he comes out and I go, and I snap my fingers and I go, you're Harris. Nice. And he goes, what? So in the script, I have you snapping your fingers just like you were doing all night. And that was my in. Um, and that kind of, that made him laugh. And he's like, okay, tell me more. What do you want? And then he's like, but the song. And then I eased his concerns about the song. And I, you know, I told him all the people I've worked with over the years who can't sing a tenth mm. as good as he sings. I mean, this guy is a, talent, man. Uh, he is a freakish. Go watch him in the fan of the opera. It's mind blowing. Um, he's awesome. I know I got to cut you loose here in a few minutes Mm because you got a hard stop, but, um, and you know, I don't know without revealing any trade secrets, but you know, going back to sort of what happens to Adam Anders post this movie, just answer this for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think as, at least as it relates to you know, subject matter like this. I'm assuming you're not just going to like, do, do, you know, do Bible stories for the rest of your, your career. I mean, you just did American Horror Story too, right? So, but to the extent you do, do you see it more that you might do something new or some recreation, reimagining, sort of re-understanding of something that was? Uh, yes. <laughs> 
um, I think all of that. I think first and foremost, it's got to be a story I am as passionate about as I am about this one, because it is such a massive commitment to go make a movie. And uh, we just talked about you know moving away from family and all the things that come with it. You better know this is what you're supposed to do and that you love it so much because there's a lot of hard days. Um, so I have to feel that passion about whatever the next thing is. I have several stories I am uh, passionate about um, coming, um, some Bible, some not. Um, definitely there's a big trilogy I want to do mm. from the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and there's a great book I just got the rights to that I've been chasing for so long and I love the story so much. Um and yeah, I just want to tell great stories and I don't want to do it, you know, like we said, I just want to make great movies that's made, you know, that has a, a point of view and mm. no agenda mm. though. You know, I'm not trying to inject an agenda. I want to, you know, just want to lift people up yeah. through art. You know, it's a very dark world. We have enough dark content and my company, me and my partner, uh, Nick, we, we named it Nightlight for a reason, you know, because darkness, uh, light needs darkness to shine. And there's a lot of darkness. That's right. So um, making these movies, whether it's uh, a Christian story or not, the one thread that will be in every movie I do is that it will give you hope in the end. And you'll feel better after you've seen it than you did before. Amen to that. Well, the, there is a lot of darkness, but we also know from the good book that the darkness will not overtake the light. So, um, mm. look, I'm excited. I just, I just um, recently, two weeks ago, went down to Orange County to the Barclay Theater and saw the uh, the stage rendition I forget the name of the company of um, C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, and oh, wow. yeah. you know I walk out of this thing and I'm going man, you know you, you have to take obviously license with the with the source material in the sense of updating some terminology sort of recontextualizing things because people are not we don't do history real well so like a lot of people don't know what mm -hmm. happened what was going on in World War II or you know, they don't, they don't understand some of these English idiosyncrasies or whatever, but I'm like, man, is that such a cool concept of like, you know, this sort of upside down world and like the way that the demons work and, you know, try And it's hysterical too. That's the other thing. It's really funny. And I just left mm -hmm. there going, I really hope somebody picks up on this and just makes a just kick-ass screw tape letters, sort of new version mm -hmm. of it. Um, I'm a fan of Lewis, I'm a fan of a lot of things, but, but like that one in particular. So that's why I asked about like, is it something that's been done kind of reimagined or maybe new stories? Cause a lot of cool new stories too. And, and, you know, new books and things that can, that there's been no yeah. films for. I love history though. I love making, I love the fact that this was period, you know, yeah. I, I'm a sucker for period movie. Me too. I, I want, I want a movie to take me somewhere else. Right. I want to go somewhere. Yeah. And that's why I love calling this movie a musical adventure because it is an adventure. It takes you on this, this journey. Um, and I think that's kind of what we want. You go to the movie theater and by the way, you got to see this in the movie theater. It, For sure. hundred percent. And theater, with good audio too. Hopefully it turned up. Sometimes I get pissed cause they turn it like the volume's really low. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Like reference is seven. I keep telling them they played at four. Like that's too <laughs> soft, man. It's like 40% softer than it's supposed to be. It's a musical. Um, but yeah, I just see it in the theaters and go, you know, be taken away and, and just to the special, it's a magical thing, man, yeah. especially with music, because every sense uh, in your body is being kind of uh, stimulated in such an amazing, magical way. And it moves you in a different way, for sure. But I think, look, um, as a Christian guy, it, what I found, and you, you said it very astutely that, you know, we are learning too, living here, right? We're being formed. And I think that's really valuable, because what I see is that these days, Christians aren't known for their love. 
right? And yeah. that's what we should be known for. Mm. And lost that a little bit. And I think we're known for everything we don't like rather than what we do. And what we should do is love our neighbors, love our communities, love our city, um, and be known for that. Then you can start changing lives a little bit. And hopefully that's what we can do with great art. We can just show, there's just a lot of love in this movie. I really, it sounds cheesy, but there is. And the people who made it love it. The people on screen love it and they love each other. And it was a familial thing. And I want to keep that going. Um, and even in my walk every day, just meeting and working with people, you know, it's so important to me. I prayed every single day. I started on my knees and just said, just empty me of myself and help me to lead today. Mm you would want me to lead and and that's a huge mission you know for for every believer and christian um to that's the greatest thing we could do just for sure. be cool man <laughs> just don't be a jerk yeah <laughs> you know, of course be somebody fun to work for be somebody you look up to you know what a concept can and we fail at it all the time i fail at it constantly but that's what we should strive to do anyway but that's a good prayer we gotta we gotta do more of that kind of prayer that's you know in the catholic tradition um there's well anyway, maybe more than the Catholic tradition, but there's the idea of the virtue of docility. And docility is this idea of letting somebody teach you something you already know and mm. doing it with grace, right? Mm. Um, and sort of that prayer of like, hey, take me out of me and let this be, you know, what you will and all of that is something that that I, I think is a good starting point to any kind of project because you've got your vision, but ultimately we're trying to walk in his and mm -hmm. and uh, and that's what it what it's all about. Um, the film is Journey to Bethlehem. It opens on November tenth um, nationwide. How many how many screens you got for this? Three thousand in, in North America, and then it's a uh, thirty to forty countries picked it up to around the world. It's a big release. Amazing, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of <laughs> a lot of yeah. I bet I bet. I feel like there's a train coming at me and it's either going to run me over or pick me up and take me on a ride. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. No, I think it's going to be great. And Adam, you can count on my prayers, the prayers of everybody here in this audience by extension for the great prosperity and success of this work. Oh, Not everybody, you. I'm sure you're going to have your naysayers in all kind of fronts and all kind of areas, but we have to recognize that God calls us to a time and a place for a reason. And we have to be present in that particular moment. And um, my great hope is that this... Uh, this film gets seen by an awful lot of people and that when they walk out of that theater, they not only have a wonderful experience and feel something, but ask themselves why they do mm -hmm. and that that mm -hmm. kind of draws them a little bit closer. What a privilege to have you on the show, brother. Thank you very much for, for coming by. Mm -hmm. uh, really Thanks, awesome. Man. And thank you for the invite to go see uh, to your, your film, uh, Journey to Bethlehem. Awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. And for those of you hearing uh, our voices, that means it's time to subscribe to this show yet again. Follow this show. Share this episode. By the way, I know you guys know, obviously, a lot of people who could benefit from seeing this movie. It's a lot of fun. It's really beautifully crafted, which is not something you can say about everything. Uh, and you're going to walk out of there happier than when you went in, which is, uh, I think, pretty good return on investment. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.